Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to 101 Part-Time Jobs, the only podcast in the world 
where you can hear about your favourite band or artist or comedian's other job that you didn't know about. I'm very excited to say that this episode is with Ben Ayers, who plays guitar and tambora in the legendary Anglo-Indian band Corner Shop, who you'll definitely know for their timeless mega hit, Brimful of Asher. I hope you like listening to this. I certainly enjoyed chatting to Ben. Go well. Cheers. I was born in Newfoundland in Canada to um, English parents who emigrated in 67 and I was born the next year out there because my dad got a job at the university out in uh, Newfoundland in St. John's. Um, And then by the time I was nine, I came over to with my sisters to go to school in the West Country. Um, We lived at my grandparents' house in Torbay and um, yes, I went to school in, in Devon. Nice. Not far from Totnes. And um beautiful town. Yeah, yeah, but like it, mythical. Quite remote and Totnes had some gigs. It actually had some reggae gigs as did Torquay. Torquay was quite funny actually. Torquay um has a place called Kent's Cavern which Haile Selassie visited in the 20s or 30s because there are some remains of very early man there uh, which he was fascinated in and uh, so as a result all the reggae bands of the 70s wanted to go to Torquay because Haile Selassie had been there. So uh, there were some great bands playing there. Um, but apart from that, uh, it was quite thin on the ground for gigs. So when I got the chance to go to do a degree, uh, when I left school, I wanted to go to a town that was industrial <laughs> and had lots of bands playing, um, bands like The Fall and stuff. So I, I went up to um, Preston in Lancashire. And that's where I met Tajinda and we formed Corner Shop. How did you find out about bands like The Fool? Um, well, uh, as a kid, I used to listen to the charts religiously on a Sunday and tape stuff, uh, although obviously it was highly illegal at the time, but everyone did it. And then um, I then I, then I got into listening to the evening shows, which had I soon realised had even better music on, more interesting stuff. And... Um, I got hooked on John Peel, and that was a massive education. And uh, so by the time I went off and left Devon, I, I was looking for the music that he was playing. And you were playing music yourself? No, not at that stage. I was, I'd begun collecting records or buying records, um, but I, I never had any plan to, to be a musician or anything. I didn't think I could be. Um, but when I got up to college where I met Tajinda, in the second year in particular, we, we hung out a lot and um, went to see a lot of bands, a lot of, quite a few of which were really on the border of being able to play, quite punky. And we just thought maybe we could have a go. And have, we had a laugh initially just doing it at uh, the house we played in, or lived in, sorry. But then we, um, we played like the Caribbean Club and stuff up there. Paint a picture of life around then. Uh, well... We we were at uh, Preston Polytechnics and and we were, we were meant to be doing courses and stuff, but we didn't really do that much work. I, my ma- main memory is staying up all night to do essays every week or two. Um, generally, we'd be going to see bands, we'd be going to the record shop, and we I, I guess we just gravitated towards music for some reason. I was studying the history and theory of art and design and geography. Yeah, just because they were what I did all right in a levels really yeah and you were hanging out at these places where there was lots of live music and and chinda was already playing was he 
Uh, no, again, he he just he just picked up a bass and uh, bought a bass amplifier, cheap bass amplifier. I um, I turned up the second year with my mum's acoustic nylon string guitar that she had at school, um, and we just made a bit of a racket, and it just led from there really. And and were, were there lots of other people doing that? What was the sort of what was the landscape like of live music around then? Was it a done thing? No, we were pretty weird for what we were doing, really, because uh, we were just making up our own stuff on these rudimentary, pretty crap instruments, to be frank. Um, at the music venues we were going to, it was much more people with proper instruments, proper amps, uh, bands and artists that were being played on John Peel already, playing like the Creepers and the Janitors and, like I said, the Fall, Ted Chippington and stuff like that. Um, so... You know, even at that stage, we didn't think it would lead to anything, I don't think. We were just making cassettes that we could have a laugh listening back to. Um, but, uh, yeah. And small parts of success were to come quite quickly. How did it How did it happen? How long were you making those tapes for? A um, couple of years, I suppose. But then the thing that really focused it was more or less when I actually left college and went. I went down to London to live with my girlfriend. And um, we'd still carried on meeting up to play the odd gig about 1989. So years before the first record. Yeah, about two, two, three years before. Yeah. Um, and then Tajinda, meanwhile, stayed on at the uni, at the poly and uh, became ENTS officer where he ran into quite a lot of, um, there's no other word for it, racism, really, in terms of people trying to get him out of the position and, and, um, and just just abuse, <laughs> and I think that really focused him to to do something po- musically political, and so we changed the name of the band, recruited a couple of other people, and started being a bit more serious about the gigs we were doing. And there's a, I think at the same time a, a bit more energy and aggression get, got into our playing, and it was quite confrontational in a way, um, and that's and that that motivated motivated us to go into the studio and record the first single, and from the, from then on it. You got played on John Peel and we got signed to a label and it all snowballed really. I'd all said it, but joy as an act of resistance was that was that in this case was that true in this case? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. they're joyful records. They're they're fun. That's that's a funny thing actually. We, we've always there's a reggae term that I think it applies to our music quite quite well, which which is that it's upful. You know, it's um, despite all the um, negativity that we're quite happy to wave a hand and point at um and and fight against we we try to be quite positive with our music because you know we like people like Curtis Mayfield and he you know if you're going to sing about negative things you might as well make the record one that you want to hear again and again and 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 have a good feel to it and stuff you know because mm. you're, you're singing about names who have been culturally aggressive and oppressive mm. <laughs> and repeating those names um Enoch Powell yeah, yeah. Um and that's such a brilliant song to listen to because it's it's sad and it makes me angry. It makes mm. me upset, but it's it it creates joy. It is it puts you on the up. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's it's it'll be a bit too obvious to just make a morose song about sad things, I think, you know. Our sit-up player said a funny thing actually once that um he said, "Oh, you you do realize that you never play minor chords." And we hadn't realized, but he said that that could be a factor in why it feels quite um, positive and up rather than you know apparently minor chords 
Uh, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a musician, but apparently minor chords are a little bit um, what's it, melancholy. Yeah. I think anyone who's seen you play guitar would fully disagree with, with, with what you just said. But so you started hitting the studio, hitting the studio. You went into the studio. Yeah. Um, started taking it more seriously. Yeah. What was that period of time like? Did you were you sort of quite communicative? You into gender about where you wanted to go? Was was there ambition there? It was really um, in the moment. Really, we didn't really plan too far ahead. We were very serious about what we were doing, and we, and we saw the opportunity to make a record as a massive big deal because we were both music lovers, record lovers. And that opportunity, sorry, was one that you created. Um, yeah, initially we did. We recorded something, and then when we got signed to Ouija Records they put us in the studio to record a single and that was very exciting because we knew that would be properly released and um, and at the time they were doing some some cool stuff like oh, yeah. La Tigre uh, yeah and Had Huggy, that come out, Huggy yeah. Bear and Blood Sausage and people like that yeah um, but at that time I started working at a vinyl factory um, in Hayes in Middlesex so it was quite it was quite something to to balance full time working at, in my job as well as recording at spare hours at weekends or whatever. And um, when we started playing gigs, I'd have to go to work straight from work, drive to the city we were playing, whether it's Sheffield or Cardiff or Norwich, or whatever, and then drive back during the night straight to work. You know, so it's I think it's something you could probably only do when you're young and full of energy. Did uh, did people at the vinyl factory know that you played in a band? Not really. No, my my friend Gary, who I, who I'm still friends with, who did production control there with me, um, he knew, but he was doing a similar thing. He was going out raving every night, so um, we'd both come in shattered for different reasons. Great, and uh, and and so take, walk me through those next couple of years that were that were to come. Those those two or three years. Well, um, it was just yeah, it was, it was mainly um, two or three years of the same sort of thing. I mean, as the band got more popular uh, the pressure became more and more to um, try and get time off for recording or to, for the odd tour and some tours I managed to do some tours I I couldn't I also had a, a couple of children born or well, my daughter was born in 93 as soon as the first single came out more or less or, or so or second single um, so I was juggling all of that as well and had a, a... Had, a, had a tremendously understanding and brilliant um partner kate who uh, took a lot of the child care on and stuff busy time it was yeah really busy and uh you know we were very poor as well <laughs> you know so it's like even just finding the petrol money to whiz all these different places was a uh, struggle sometimes did that did your family life then include sorry did it did your family life push an extra pressure onto the band to be doing something more than playing a few gigs for 50 quid i think it I think I was fully aware of, you know, what Kate was doing to help me do it. And so I felt a responsibility to do my best at it. And uh, certainly when we went to the studio, we always tried to, you know, make a record that we thought would stand the test of time, let's say, you know. And you had, you know, going back to talking about John Peel and, 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 the, and the charts, yeah. had some good stuff in there. Did that make it more of a viable reality? I don't know if we, we ever expected it to make money um, or be a job. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I always kept hold of the job that I did have at the record um, pressing plant, which was a job I loved. I mean, it was in a factory, but it was fascinating. And what were you doing there? 
uh, production control. So I'd take the phone calls for people ordering records and just make sure they were made the next day or the next week or whatever. Wow. And it the was, turnaround then was a lot quicker than it is now. It was, and if you didn't get the records made, then the chart position would suffer and you'd get screamed at. Um, one wow. of our main clients was um, Warner Brothers at the time, so we had to press you know, five, 10,000 Prince or Madonna singles overnight. And if you didn't make sure it happened, um, then things were quite serious. And, and the press, the machine was was there? The machines were there. Yeah, there was. it was a steam-driven presses at, at Daymont Audio in in Middlesex. And um, they, uh, but they would break down. You know, they were old, like, they're like old trains, you know. <laughs> so sometimes you'd come into work and be, someone would say, oh, everything broke down last night. And you'd just have people screaming at you all day on the phone. So it was... Re- and I was quite young at the time, so it was quite high pressure and um, massive learning curve in terms of dealing with stress and pressure and people freaking out and stuff. I mean, I had one bloke drive down from Birmingham once with his dog in a jeep, threatening to kill us. You know, <laughs> who was he? Oh, Not prob- names. I, prob- I probably shouldn't <laughs> say. Yeah. <laughs> for, for anyone listening to this uh, who hasn't had a relationship with a pressing plant, as far as I know, in my experience, we've always had to send stuff off to Prague yeah. or somewhere in Eastern Europe, and the turnaround time is weeks, if not a yeah. month or two. Yeah. And so back then, it was a completely different landscape in terms of. Oh yeah, there was in those days there was more pressing plants, and the, it was established that um you you could turn records around much faster i mean we could turn records around overnight if if necessary and we and we had to for really uh, for 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 the big labels that were putting a lot of custom through um but even someone coming in and we used to have a lot of people coming in pressing uh, like hardcore rave singles and stuff like that and you know 5000 10000 at a time which just seems incredible now yeah um and that would still be turned around inside a week easily wow you know and it was cheaper then than it is now yeah yeah well yeah i suppose it's all relative to sure everything income then bands are still getting paid 50 quid though yeah 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 (laughs) so that's that yeah yeah um and and so ouija was that that was a uh that was an opportunity for corner shop to really take on a professional approach and reach new people yeah well we just loved the fact that a label had signed us we couldn't believe it really and um I think we really um, loved the fact that we could have the resources to ha- have a bit more time in the studio and, re- and really try and make some proper records. Did, you, did they give you an advance for that? How did that work? I don't know if they did. Um, if they did, it was mit- tiny, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was four of us at the time, so, mm-hmm. you know, nothing to live on. So, that, so I, again, I felt I needed to keep my job. I had a young child as well and rent to pay in London, which is... Yep difficult um after a few years at the record plant i i um was asked to do production control at beggar's banquet okay which is one of the people i was dealing with because they noticed that i liked a lot of the artists that they they were calling through orders for and i worked there until about 94 ni- late 94 95 i think and, and they would have been to do with ouija i mean they would have known of ouija would they um oh yeah yeah they did and in fact they ended up buying Ouija or, or getting Ouija within the group but actually I got it wrong I went to Beggar's Banquet doing production about 94 and I left about 96 I think because we got we suddenly got offered loads of tours in America and um, I had to make it I actually wanted to keep my job and do it remotely which was hard in those days pre-internet 
but I, I, I thought I could do it, but they refused to let me. Be writing letters and make, making calls. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, was, I thought I would be able to do, but they wouldn't let me, so I had to make a choice, which I thought was... Uh, well, it was frustrating at the time, um, but obviously I had to take the chance of, with the band, and um, I didn't regret it. I, mean, I had five years of really hectic, busy stuff, obviously, and then in about 2002, things calmed down with the band a bit. And we, I knew we were going to have a bit of a hiatus. So um, again, I uh, I, look, I looked to do some normal work. I also thought it would be helpful just to, to get my head straight as well, to have some railroad tracks, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's good just to have a routine every day. Right. Um, not not to uh, not that I want to drag you back because I understand how years of touring can end up being some kind of like blanketing yeah. haze. Yeah. With hindsight, I mean, in hindsight now, what what were those five years like for you? You know, someone you, you obviously had your head screwed on. You knew mm. you didn't do the thing where you thought, oh, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to do the band, which I feel quite mm. a lot of people do to varying. Uh, outcomes yeah but you you clearly you know you, you well you had the family thing going on you yeah. had a responsibility mm. looking back on those five years w- what was life like for you then well I, I i kind of did think fuck it i'll do the band for, for uh, i didn't know it would be for five years i didn't even know if it would be for six months but i had to i thought i had to give it a go it was a chance you know rare chance to do something like that yeah um i think the tour that that um made me have to make the decision was uh, for about well, it's for weeks and weeks, including Lollapalooza and um, and uh, all sorts of things. And we ended up we we also toured with Oasis a year or so later um, across North America. And we were going over regularly to America and touring for three or four weeks, going coast to coast, then back again, and then back again. So three times across the country. Um, was this when airplanes had quite? cushy seats <laughs> well sometimes we'd be in a splitter van you know um so and some long drives yeah you know you say what was it like i mean it's like i think in a way it was almost like going into space because once you once you're in the bubble of a tour you lose track of time and place and um it is a really strange thing and so yeah when when it all stopped after five years or or i thought that that it was going to stop and I needed to get a job. Um, it was quite. Um, I found it quite helpful just to to get back into a routine of some sort. Really, did you have a hangover? Did it? Did it take a little bit to? I mean, not literally a hangover. I guess more of a metaphorical hangover to get you know back into the routine. I oh yeah, yeah. I mean, when you come back from every tour, it's um, it's it, you have to climatize again, and mm. uh, it's it's the weirdest thing. I mean, I'm so it's not not new new news. Most musicians would say that. Um, but yeah, it's such a strange thing. <laughs> yeah. I always spent half, half as much time as I was on a tour getting back to normal yeah. life. Yeah. Even if that is just laying around in bed, cause you feel like you can't really do much else. You know, the brain's yeah. not there. You've, you've become accustomed to doing your job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're back home and yeah. you don't have a job anymore. <laughs> yeah. So Ouija was part of Rough Trade Records. Am I right in saying no, no, that? Ouija was, uh, became part of Beggar's Group. Okay. Um, so when it started, Ouija was just itself. It was it was run out of the basement of the Rough Trade Shop in Talbot Road, actually. Okay. Um, and had links with the sh- with the Rough Trade Shop, and then Beggars Group. It went in with Beggars Group. Um, I'm not sure exactly when. Probably around about the same time I started working there, actually, or maybe a year or so later. And so the by the time we had um, really 
got up and running, um, releasing lots of albums. We we were on Ouija through Beggars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that ties us to where you've been working now for yeah. at well at Rough Trade Records. As have you always been PR at Rough Trade? Yeah, well, in 2002, I, I rang up a friend at Rough Trade and he suggested coming in and talking to Jeff Travis. And um, Jeff, uh, we we listened to music and talked for a few hours and then he said, uh, well, you know, I hear you're looking for some work. I'll, I'll have a think and I'll give you a call. And he called me the next day and asked me if I wanted to do uh, in-house press, um, just trying to get publicity on the bands, basically. Yeah. Because they didn't have anyone at the time. And... Uh, I, of course, I jumped at the opportunity, even though I had no experience really. But you had a, you had experience chatting to people, hanging out with people, under, yeah. understanding the lay of the land. Well, I think the thing that um, Jeff, real, the reason Jeff thought it might make sense is just because we had an understanding about the music we liked and stuff like that, and I think he understood that I could probably do it, you know. And uh, I've really enjoyed every minute. I mean, I've been there doing that job as well as corner shop now for 20 years and it just seems unbelievable that it's uh, actually not 20 years uh, 19 or something but it's um it feels like 18 months you know it's such an interesting place to 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 be and to you know he's always um signing great great artists yeah i mean that's the one thing you can count on rough trade records for yeah you yeah know, if, if i'm ever looking for a Something new to listen to. Yeah. Rough Trade's always a... Well, there's some great uh, Irish folk artists at the moment, Lancome okay. and Lisa O'Neill in particular. Um, yeah, all sorts of things. And there's always something new around the corner. Print doesn't really sell anymore. It's no secret. Mm. Uh, it's taught in journalism unis around the world. Yeah. How has... Obviously, that's massively impacted music journalism. Yeah. How... how I mean, you must have seen it. Change in front of your own eyes. What's that? What's that been like? Well, it has changed definitely. I mean, it's downscaled a bit, but I think at the same time, the whole. I think what everyone thought was that it was all going to go digital and be online, and mm. be, there'd be these big, powerful music websites. But it hasn't really worked out that way. I think they've struggled to get the advertising that they want because um, it's so competitive for advertising across the internet and stuff. Mm. Um, and I think really the the print mags and the surviving print mags and newspapers have actually got a bit more powerful recently, and, and it feels to me like uh, it might be swinging back that way a bit. Would you include the London and sort of Manchester free sheets? Yeah, in that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, you know, uh, publications like Loud and Quiet. Yeah, and, well, Bristol uh, as well. Isn't yeah, yeah, yeah crack, crack, and, and um, in Manchester there's New Sounds Sound magazine and. There seems to be a few popping up, and um, it seems to be getting a bit better. Um, yeah. As a PR, what advice could you give to fresh PRs now, looking to do something good and special? Um, oh, that's a difficult question. Uh, <laughs> um, I would suggest um, realising or working out which journalists should like the band that you're working with. Maybe do some research and look at the magazines and papers to see what people are writing about that's similar, um, and and try and um, talk to a few key influential journalists about a band first and and sort of seed it that way, rather than just blanket trying to uh, you know get everyone. Did you still think picking up the phone is the best way? 
I think it's often a great way, yeah, especially now because people are just swamped with emails, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, we we have to do a few announcements, but it, I I do find it frustrating because it is just like a mail shot, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I always find. I mean, we know each other because I write the column in the eye. Yes, of course. You've been sending me amazing records for a good few years now. I often look at these blanket PR emails and I'm just like, oh, you know, so many people aren't going to look at them. I've done some yeah. PR myself and it can feel a bit depressing sometimes. Yes, yeah. Um, because there's so much going on yeah. all the time. You might have the best record of that year, mm. that month, and no one might pick up on it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's um, it's a tricky thing. I think it's something that's going to change, actually, in the next few years is the whole announcement thing. How so? Well, I just think it's too much. I think peop- I think journalists have been swamped with, with yeah. it all, and I think really announcements might just maybe switch to social media and and maybe conversations about records and interviews will will go be be important again. How how are you finding out about new music now? Um, do you have do you have time to? Well, I I obviously through my job I look at a lot of magazines and and websites, mm. um, but I suppose one of the main places is the Rough Trade Office because everyone there is listening to new music all the time and sharing things they like and they don't like and so yeah. so that that's one of the reasons I love going in there really <laughs> you said um your 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 daughter's in sort of late 20s is she, yeah. she is she doing anything that have you have you sort of guided her into well she's actually I mean she's amazing she's she's got a degree in history and english from queen mary um and she's She's interested in, in the music industry, but she's actually got a job at the moment at uh, the Victorian Society as media officer, which is which, and they're a body that a charity body, I think, that um, fight to save um, Victorian buildings. Brilliant, uh, all around the country, which is uh, an important job. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Ben, thanks so much. England is a garden is a great record. Thank you. Um, I've been jamming it for the last few days, and it's got such a, you know, upfall. Is that the word he said? Yeah, up full. Up full. Yeah. I'll start yeah. using that. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. Running around like a blue-ass fly. I've been working. Yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.